202 with me, my co-host, Barry Rose. Barry, very excited about this week's episode. Is it because of our match of the week we're going to Memphis? No. Is it because we're going to have a special guest, the Cuban Connection, Dave Sierra and Ricky Santana? No. Is it because we're going to talk about this week in CWF history? No. Barry Rose, ladies and gentlemen, is happy because for the first time ever on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, your favorite, your favorite Arcadian Vanguard podcast. That's right, Lou Kippelman. I said it. It's everyone's favorite Arcade. It's not one of the lesser podcasts. For the first time ever, Barry Rose and I will be discussing prostitution. Boom. Barry, have you heard of this phenomenon known as prostitution? We, 202 episodes and we've never discussed prostitution before? I, I would gather to say that within the bounds of these 202 episodes, some of our listeners may have engaged in prostitution. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they visited. Maybe they're selling their bodies. I don't know, Barry, which one. I don't, I'll tell you what, it just, so, <laughs> I was going to say, Jeff, have you ever visited a prostitute? I have but not. Uh, <laughs> I'm proud to say, yeah. uh, if my parents are listening, yeah, exactly, uh, I have right. not partaken of their, uh, their pleasures, if you will. Yeah, me neither, Jeff. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is that your story and you're sticking to it? Yes, sir. Now, among the things we're going to talk about uh, on this episode, uh, in our visit with, uh, with Dave Sierra and Ricky Santana, uh, we're discussing the CWF Fan Fest with you and uh, a lesser lesser known entrepreneur, David Penzer. Do you think David Penzer, as a way of supplementing the income, paying the talent, has prostituted himself? Put an ad out, former WCW announcer available for your sexual gratification. Would you think that's a possibility? <laughs> sure. Now, now I know he's listening. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's funny. No. <laughs> No, he says no. So, Barry, let's go from Dave Penzer, prostitute, male prostitute, much like Fred Garvin. I wonder if Dave has an elaborate set of trusses like Fred Garvin. We are going to, I notice you're, you're suspiciously quiet on that issue, Bear. Yeah. Uh, July 24th, 1982. Oh, the rings of Memphis TV. God rest his soul, Bobby Eaton and Bill Dundee. Go on at it, and you know what? You know what I like about this match. Before you uh, give your thoughts, Barry, is sure. if you watch this match, there is so much happening in a 15-minute segment. Not not just a really good solid match, but you've got Dutch Mantel, you've got Lance Russell, Dave Brown, and oh, Barry, if people ever wondered why people that are wrestling fans love Jimmy Hart in Memphis so much. Watch this match, Barry, because holy cow, he is friggin' electric. He's great, but let's be everybody does a great job here. Yes, you know, that's fair. Yeah, and it's it's like, you know, as you're watching this Dutch Mantel, my God, he looks great. He's got a shoe baby, he's got his whip. You know, Bill Dundee and Bobby Eaton, too. These are uh this was a the former father-in-law and son-in-law. Obviously, Bobby recently passed. These two were related, Bobby being married to the daughter of Bill Dundee for years. But th this is a it's a great match. But you know, this is so indicative of what the product that Memphis was offering in the 1970s going into the 1980s. And they really had a knack for making their show. Super interesting and super watchable. You know, there was some stuff that, you know, 
some of like the uh, the the more gimmicky type of shit I didn't always care for. But at the same time, you were never bored when you watched Memphis, you know, and that that to me, that really says something right there. But this is a great match. Spoiler alert. If you don't want to hear lower your volume about this match from 40 years ago, exactly <laughs> 41 <laughs> years ago or so. Exactly. Title change. And I'll tell you what. I love watching a title change. And this was great because this was one of those matches that uh, it looked like it was, you know, kind of done on the fly. Dutch Mantel came out, became the special enforcer, wasn't supposed to. But there was a believability aspect to this match. And uh, these two guys really worked well together. Eaton's bumps. I know that Bobby gets a lot of talk, uh, you know, for just being stellar in the ring. A lot of people since his passing, we discussed Steve Kern last week, but a lot of people that have worked with Bobby or seen Bobby work will say he really was one of the best of all time. This is what I what had me thinking. First off, great match. This is everything that you want in Memphis in a professional wrestling match. But Bobby Eaton, could Bobby have been a single star in the 1970s, and I'll say up till about 83, up in the territory days is really what I'm going for. Could Bobby have been a single star if Bobby had worn a mask and become a masked wrestler, much like a Mr. Wrestling 2 or a guy like that? So a guy that, you know, it, I'm not sure how I see Bobby as a singles guy other than, you know, Memphis or Continental, but I'm talking about you know, maybe being a main event guy and working other territories, but would Bobby have had to have worn a mask? And what do you think? Do you think that could have actually happened, Jeff? Uh, well, I think obviously, although Bobby could talk, Bobby had such a pronounced Southern accent. I, I think that he would have needed a mouthpiece. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, when they put him with Jim Cornette, it, it was like, you know, kismet the way those two connected and and here with jimmy uh you know uh, hart uh, you know jimmy hart was working the crowd he was working the tv studio just brilliantly and bobby was doing everything else and that's you know now could you have brought bobby eaton into memphis could he have gone to florida could he have gone to mid-atlantic uh mid-south texas under a hood absolutely i don't know that it would have been a requirement you know, some guys, they got under the hood and it just didn't work. Some guys, you know, I think, think of Jody Hamilton basically worked his entire damn career under a mask. And, you know, Johnny Walker, uh, after he, you know, got out of the whole rubber band uh, gimmick and he found his uh, a second career and maybe a, a better career as Mr. Wrestling 2, some guys could work with the mask. Some people couldn't. Could Bobby Eaton have, uh, have done that? I don't know. But uh, certainly Bobby Eaton could have done anything. And again, Barry, you watch this match. He was like 25 years old. Yeah. He was 25 years old doing this match. And he was absolutely brilliant. And you could just see the talent just like oozing out of his pores how good he was and how much better he was going to be. Yeah, he was. It was, uh, you know, and I don't. I don't think Bobby I'm trying to think the first time that I saw Bobby and it was on a ghoulish show, which would have been, I think, 78 maybe or something. And he was already really good. You know, he was the kind of guy that I don't know how long you worked for Goulas before he became, uh, you know, one of the top level workers there, but had to be within his first year. Like Bobby was one of those guys that was good right out of the gate. You know, I, we've talked about Dick Slater. Dick Slater was exactly the same. 
Dick Slater right out of the gate, you know, just a, a tremendous talent. Bobby was there, but other than the interview, is there a sing? Was there a single flaw in Bobby's game anywhere? No, threw a great looking punch. Uh, did great stuff off the top rope that, according to all the stories, the opponent never even felt. You know, and the guys that do the big moves off the top. You know, Dynamite Kid would do a great move off the top rope, but you felt it. Bobby Eaton, uh, Randy Savage was reportedly this way too. He would do the, there would both be these moves and you would never feel the effects of the move, you know, because they, they were taking the brunt of the, of the, uh, the bump. And it's a, a very special talent that someone can do that. You know, I've always, and I think I've mentioned this at least one time before, as much as I loved uh, when they were in world-class, uh, the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette, I loved the Von Erichs program with uh, Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams. But I wonder if they couldn't have made even more money working with Bobby and Dennis, with Jimmy being the mouthpiece, stirring shit up with with uh, Fritz and with the boys. And I just really feel like, and, and I don't want anyone thinking that I'm I'm dismissive of Gino and Chris. I love those guys, you know, the, yeah. the dynamic duo. But I wonder if they could have done more with the Midnight Express and Jim. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I because in, in hindsight we can always say something. Oh, of course, like that. yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, but they they did do it. I mean, for the most part, they did do a good job. Uh, certainly, Jim Hurd, et cetera. You know, some booking decisions that were made there. But could they have? They probably could have. And I think that they probably should have. You told that story last week, Jeff, about Ric Flair, about Bobby Eaton was one of those guys he wanted to work with. So I think more could have been done. I think there was such an internal respect for Bobby Eaton that not a lot of guys get, not at that kind of level. And it wasn't about drawing money. It wasn't anything out. It was about a guy that busted his ass every single match. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. Yeah, so we'll we'll post a link to this uh, match in a video. Again, July 24th, 1982, Memphis Bobby Eaton and Bill Dundee. Very real quick as we're starting here, wanted to give you a, an update on something, uh, you know, uh, of course, and I don't want to beat the proverbial dead horse on this, but, you know, I've talked before uh, about my cancer struggles uh, that uh, I went through, and uh, there's a, a phrase I like to use, and that's collateral damage. And collateral damage, things you don't think about that are affected by your cancer diagnosis, Barry. And, you know, uh, I've I don't know if I mentioned on the show or not. One of the things that I have a problem with is I have uh, what they call peripheral neuropathy, which is like uh, something that affects uh, your feet where you have uh, the way I like to describe it is uh, you might be ready to go to sleep, but you feel, uh, your feet are still awake. And so I, oh. I take I take some medication to help me with that. Uh, occasionally I have to wear uh, the always attractive, Barry, the compression socks. It's a, it's a good look, uh, especially <laughs> if you're out in shorts. So will I, uh, will you I like to wear them with my fest, jeans, Jeff. if you know what I'm talking about. Will you be wearing these at FanFest for all I, of us? I, I cannot <laughs> promise anything, but if someone wants a photo of me with my shorts and my uh, compression <laughs> socks, they'll be available for a nominal fee. I would, anyway, I'll set up a table for you, Jeff. I, <laughs> I really, bet you will. You we're going to get, you're going to get a line going. So, yes. <laughs> so, anyway, thanks for making fun of me, uh, Cancer Boy. Uh, anyway. So uh, so the other day, I had the occasion to go to uh, my dentist. I'm ashamed to say that with the cancer and everything else that happened in my life, this is my first visit to the dentist other than when I had to go and have a, uh, a tooth uh, basically uh, taken out and re replaced by an implant. I had not gone 
for a regular checkup to the dentist. So anyway, so I go there and it just so happened the hygienist uh, that was uh, was treating me that day uh, and did a great job. We were discussing uh, cancer and uh, I guess her uncle had just been diagnosed with the same thing that I had. So we started talking about, here we go, Barry, the collateral damage that chemo does on your teeth. Did you even know that? You know what? I, I, I did a little... I did a little bit, yeah. Doesn't it remove the enamel? Well, you know, let's just say it's not recommended. You know, yeah. uh, it's not going to do, you know, again, as I've said before, it's poison attacking, you know, a poisonous uh, thing in your body. So what happens is, you know, so I was going, like I said, hadn't been in a while. And I'm like going, fuck, I'm going to get the, oh, you've got 14 fucking cavities. Got to have three. You know, I'm, I'm fearing the worst and hoping for the best. So I went there and the absolutely astounding thing was, I had a good checkup, but she said, all things considered, considering you were a cancer survivor, the fact that your teeth look the way they do is pretty amazing because we've seen people come in who have had chemo treatments, whose teeth are just in horrific shape. Exactly because of why you said, Barry, the chemo attacks your teeth it attacks the enamel and the gum lines and stuff like that. They actually did a density study on my, uh, on the bones uh, you know, in my uh, in my gums and stuff like that, and said they were in good shape. So you know, it's just another one of those fucking things. And I think I read a friend of the show, Joe Christie. Thank you for being a Patreon subscriber. Is going through his own cancer issues. Wow, Barry, just one more fucking thing uh, when you are dealt that card uh, of cancer that you have to fucking worry about. Yeah, it's a shame. And as you just said, we want to wish Joe all the best during this tough time. And uh, it looks to that he still has his sense of humor, which is great. But it, it, it is. It's, you know, it's one of those things that every day, especially at my age, I sit here and I think about my own mortality. And, and I don't do it in like this morose kind of, oh, I'm going to die. You know, it isn't like that. But I, I know at my age, I see people my own age dropping dead of heart attacks. And, you know, when you're young, much, you know, Jeff, we were young once, hard to believe, but when we were young, we were invincible. You know what I mean? We never thought about anything because we, we thought we would live forever. We had the strength to beat anything. And as we get older, it's so much tougher. And Lord knows I have spent just a little bit of time out in the sun, Jeff. And uh, yeah, just a little. And I go to the and you, you and I were talking about this when you were diagnosed with skin cancer. And it's like, you know, I go twice a year and I've been really fortunate. But I also know, you know, look, my day could be coming. I'm not completely blind and living in some sort of shell with this. So, so I feel for you. There, there's so many side effects to all of it. Can uh, I ask you a really stupid question? Uh, so sure. <laughs> w when you go out, well, not the first time, certainly. When, <laughs> when you go out in the sun, yes. uh, do you use the uh, Sunblock 4000 uh, or whatever? Do you use some sort of tanning product, dare I ask? I don't use a tanning product. I don't. The, the truth is, as my dermatologist ha, will tell me, I have mutated my DNA to the point that I literally have a year-round tan at this point. However, in the summer and when I'm out in the sun, I can also get like a full deep tan within 30 minutes. That's from mutating my DNA, apparently. But Your skin I, doctor he, calls you shoe leather. Is that what you're he saying? He calls me shoe leather. He calls me Magda from something about Mary. <laughs> So, yes, he does. Well, you so. kiss Ozzy in the mouth. I know that. So, you know, the reason <laughs> I'm asking is because, you know, if you think back to those uh, younger days uh, of Barry and the Booker, you know, back in that time, you know, like besides the sun in that I would use in, in my once glorious head of hair, 
but stuff like I can remember my sister going to the beach and she would put like baby oil on. Yes. You know, and and people that would use those like, you know, like uh, what do you call those uh, pieces of tin or, or steel? And they'd hold them up to try to get the sun to hit yep. them even harder in the face. And you're like, what the fuck were we doing? You know, Bear, Bear, well, we did know. one of those products like baby oil or anything like that. I'm sure that I did. I'm talking but... for tanning, not for other purposes. Oh, oh well, yeah, because I uh, yeah, absolutely. But for tanning, I'm sure that I did. So I lived on the beach. That's all I cared about. And there were two things that were were required. I didn't do the one, but I did the other one, actually. One was people would get uh, iodine and put it in the baby lotion. Because that would make your skin instantly, I don't know if it stuck or if you were tanner or what, but that was it. The other was, Jeff, in, in order to lighten people's hair color at the time, everybody knows about getting lemon and squeezing lemon is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did that. A lot of people used to take Ajax and put Ajax in their hair. I think Rick Flair did that. Did he? I would imagine. Holy shit. People are putting Ajax in their hair. But to your to what you just said, you're, Jeff, it, I have to say, I don't think sunblock actually existed when we were kids. I think there was zinc and that was it. There wasn't traditional sunblock. So there are photos of me out at the beach at a year old lying on a towel at the beach. And I'm sure getting burned and, you know, completely irresponsible. The same people that took me to see exorcist when I was like five exactly. or six. So completely irresponsible. But that's the way of the world back in those days. You know, secondhand smoke. You know, come on. My mother must have smoked, you know, 8,000 cartons of cigarette in a car with no windows rolled down, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the old days. But I, I will say I do use sunblock now, you know, and, you know, fingers crossed I'll be 58 in about two months and I've never had skin cancer and I want to continue with that. So, yeah. So, well, much like the uh, song, uh, what is it? Uh, old days, good times, I remember. <laughs> As you're talking about the secondhand smoke in the car. <laughs> yes. Uh, fun, fun, fun. Okay, Barry, let's switch topics here. Smooth transition as always. Oh, yeah. We are going to break kayfabe on something, what? Barry, that we have never discussed before on this show. What? Yes, indeed. Because, you know, the other day, Barry, someone reached out to me and they said, you know what we'd like? We would like you to do an episode strictly on courthouse stories. And they mentioned that we should invite Cholminski. And Barry was very enthusiastic about that prospect, by the way. But it led me to something that uh, came up. It, it, it popped up on, on Twitter. I saw this, this picture and it just reminded me of one of the classic all-time Broward County stories. Barry, let's talk to the folks about Jeff and Kathy Willits, South Florida's most famous prostitute. Oh, Barry, do you remember the story of the Willits? Oh, I mean, Jeff, we, uh, if, if you lived in South Florida during this era, unless you were in a coma or a vegetable, if you were breathing, you knew every detail about this story. Everyone did. It was the biggest deal. It was, I guess, our respite. And I forget exactly what year this was, but, you know, South Florida has seen things, you know, a lot of crime. They, the cocaine cowboys. We had Hurricane Andrew, which devastated part of Miami. This was the fun stuff, though. The Kathy and Jeff Willett story, as bizarre as it is, 
was really like a just something that I you couldn't you know it was it was on every TV newscast it was on in every newspaper and I've mentioned the name Neil Rogers before he was the Howard Stern of South Florida when it came to radio he lived and died by Kathy and Jeff Willits because it was a great story and it was great for ratings I was a huge Kathy Willits fan up until I saw the movie Jeff Yes. So let me just give some background to those of you out there who may not be familiar with this story. Kathy Willits was a, a woman who uh, she was married to uh, to her husband, whose name was Jeff, who was a deputy sheriff in Broward County, uh, Fort Lauderdale is where we're talking. And it became a huge uh, Barry was right. I mean, this was uh, oh, this is the story was happening in September of 1991. And uh, wow, this. You, you couldn't walk 10 spaces without seeing some sort of newspaper or television story about these two. And what had happened was they apparently had a marriage that was uh, somewhat open. Fair to say, Barry. Yes, very open. Uh, yeah. Yep. And, and apparently what happened was uh, Jeff and Kathy like uh, Jeff liked to watch. Uh, so, you know, he liked to <laughs> yeah. watch his wife having sex with many men. Yep. Uh, it was uh, what was especially sort of creepy about it. Uh, was that Jeff favored going and he had a lawn chair that he would put in their closet. He would sit down on the lawn chair, close the door. Kathy would bring the uh, the gentleman in, uh, have a <clears throat> carnal relations with them as Jeff not only watched, apparently got off on it, but also Jeff was in favor of taking copious notes, which I, I found extremely interesting. So let me just read you. Uh, this is September 20th, 1991, and not the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinelberry, went as far up as the Chicago Trib. Wow. And Chicago coming forth in the story. I'm going to read some excerpt from the story just to give some background. Quote, the ad was tucked away in the fine print of the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel classifieds. Frosted blonde, great tan, hot body, very sexual, turquoise eyes. Ooh, Barry, you like a girl with turquoise eyes? She, had, she had pretty eyes. Yeah. yeah. Romantic yeah. and sensual, seeking generous, affluent executive male for day-slash-evening interludes. Fun, loving, and hot. Enclosed business card. So I, I guess, Barry, if you're one of those guys at the time that did not have your own business card, you were out of the loop uh, and out of luck. But anyway, it could have been just another come-on in the sleaze and tease world of the personals but it proved to be much more a piece of evidence in a case that for two months has grown quirkier by the day. One that may involve nymphomania. We always love stories about nymphomania, Barry. Am I Absolutely. correct there? Absolutely. Impotence, extortion, blackmail, and some of Fort Lauderdale's most prominent citizens. The frosted blonde, it turned out, was Kathy Willis, a 33-year-old suburbanite whose ad apparently did not exaggerate her charms, but understated her offer. On July 30th, Willits was arrested for running a prostitution business from her Tamarack, Florida home. By, by the way, Barry, let's just mention for the good folks out there, you know, if you don't know South Florida, Tamarack is not a place you would associate with the prostitution <laughs> business. Is, is that correct, Bear? That's it. That would be 100% correct. You yes. know, that's not exactly known <laughs> as sleaze and, you know, and, and all kind of hookers and, uh, you know, you were sort of the various carnal relations. Uh, Tamarack was essentially built as a retirement community yeah. when it was first developed, like, I don't know, 60 or 70 years ago. Anyway, Jeffrey Willits, a Broward County Sheriff's deputy, had been arrested a week earlier and charged with making money off prostitution. In other words, 
for being his wife's pimp. Oh, oh, my Barry. So here's where we go from there. So what ends up happening is they hire famous, uh, at the time, famous South Florida uh, lawyer, Ellis Rubin. Ellis Rubin was uh, most famous uh, at the time for, uh, Barry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in the way back machine now. Do you remember the Ronnie Zamora trial? Oh, I absolutely do. Okay. I 100% do. Well, tell the folks what you remember about Ronnie Zamora. Ronnie Zamora trial would have been 76, 77, I think. So maybe Approximately, yeah. And if I'm correct, was Ronnie Zamora, he either, he killed either his mother or father, or he killed another kid at school, right? Yes. That's, that's where I'm going with, another kid at school. Violence by television intoxication That's was the defense. Was. Essentially, right. his attorney argued that uh, this kid had been so jaded by the violence on television, it led him to kill. Uh, unsuccessful defense, by the way, but that's I another story. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. So Ellis Rubin was a real hotshot South Florida attorney, uh, a celebrity attorney, if you will, before the term was uh, thrown around. So they hire Ellis Rubin to defend them in this prostitution case. The prosecutor, uh, the noted Joel T. Lazarus, who ended up becoming a, a South Florida judge for many, many years uh, and who gained a lot of fame and eh, I want to say basically might have got the slot as a judge based on his notoriety from, from this eh, career prosecutor uh, became a judge not too long after this trial. So he certainly made his bones off of this case. But so what happens is uh, they end up bringing them to trial. Ellis Rubin's defense for why, why Kathy became a prostitute, why she began, uh, uh, you know, soliciting money for sexual gratification. It's always always a good time to throw out the word sexual gratification mm. on the breaking kayfabe with Bowden and Barry. So his defense was, well, Kathy was taking Prozac and it turned her into a nymphomaniac. Mm. Barry, do you realize how far the sales of Prozac would have gone if this turned out to be true? Oh, I mean, I would have invested is Pfizer. I would have invested immediately. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. So, uh, but you're always a, a man that likes a good investment strategy. Absolutely. So anyway, so this ends up falling by the wayside. So why am I bringing this story up from 30 odd years ago? For a couple of reasons. Uh, uh, people are always, uh, uh, there's a few of you out there. I'm not going to say all of you, but some of you are out there interested in uh, the occasional court story. And I don't think I ever told this one before. And so there was a time when uh, I was uh, at the courthouse. And I remember when this trial was going on and Barry was absolutely right. Would you say 100% correct? Check. Check. That I happened to be on a break outside the courthouse, chit-chatting with some friends. And lo and behold, I see what can only be described, Barry, as a mob scene coming towards us uh, at the entrance of the, of the courthouse. And as the mob gets closer and closer, and Barry, I'm talking maybe 50, 60, maybe even 70 people surrounding this woman. And it was Kathy Willits coming into court for, I don't know if it was a hearing or for the trial itself. And I tell you, that is when I lost a lot of respect for the media in this country, because I'm telling you, they would have trampled a toddler. If sure. the toddler meant they were not getting a, a camera shot of Kathy Willits, whether it's by a, you know, a, a 
a camera, uh, you know, like a, a live video camera, uh, a still shot from a from the news media, whatever. I mean, if you were in their way, you were getting mowed fucking down because nothing was more important than getting, you know, because here we got we got the nymphomania. We got the, uh, you know, the celebrity lawyer. We got prostitution. Oh, and Barry, let's also mention there were a couple of names in Kathy's Rolodex that may have been well-known. Let's just say there were some men in the greater South Florida area who did not want their name mentioned as being one of Kathy's clients. Could, can you imagine why, Bear? <laughs> and, and just to piggyback on what Jeff's saying, so this was the story went on for months. I mean, th this was not something that, you know, was around for a week. This literally was around for months. But the, the real big story to a lot of this was that there was this Rolodex or book or address book, whatever, something that you had mentioned. And there were a lot of names, but it was supposed to be judges, lawyers, local politicians, local celebrities. A lot of big names were actually in that book, allegedly. Well, and one that did come out because there were some that were prevented from being, you know, like a release to the media. But one apparently that did come out was a guy who was the... Uh, proper term for this, uh, Barry, the vice mayor of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, <laughs> and it was a man who had uh, made a living on going after prostitution, sure. the adult cinema industry, and adult bookstores. Oh, and lo and behold, how unfortunate. Turns out he was a client of Ms. Willits uh, and her, uh, her husband, who liked to keep logs of the clients. And he basically would also... Uh, describe in his little notepad uh, various peculiarities that they might have and their preferences uh, sexually. And uh, he would uh, give them, I, I think he uh, like also gave them like a score. <laughs> like, well, Kathy said this guy was a six in the sack. So she ends up getting convicted, okay? She ends up getting, I think, probation. Uh, she ends up getting like something four hours of 400 hours of community service that I'm sure she was happy to fulfill. Uh, her husband, uh, disgraced now, loses his badge and uh, unquestionably should have. I, I think he gets some time in county lockup. Okay. But the uh, epilogue of the story, Quinn Martin production, that's what they always had at the end of those uh, detective shows that were Quinn Martin productions. Epilogue. The epilogue to the story was Kathy ends up going into the adult film industry. Barry, do you want to take it from there? You mentioned Kathy's uh, film career. Yeah, absolutely, too. So Kathy, which and it's, I didn't realize how old she was. You said 33. And we got to say, whether this was sun damage or not, she looked much older than 33 years old. She looked easily in her 40s, uh, which probably was the sun damage. But she released a movie, and this was probably a year or two after everything had calmed down. And she made the movie with a, a porn producer named Seymour Butts. Now, <laughs> that yeah, sounds reputable. Oh, yeah, that's a great. Well, he, you know, so he was known. He had a show on Showtime for years. I think it was called Family Business, where it like his mother was working for him. His uh, uncle. Oh, I thought I thought we were going into his line of films there when you said family business. So, well, but it, I think the, that was because he like he had his mother working with him and helping run his porno empire. And his porno was not uh, it wasn't, you know, straight missionary. <laughs> like it was it was pretty graphic. For Please, would you like to describe in further detail well, any of these there, films you yeah. have seen? There was, well, I've seen a couple of them, uh, oh. and, and I did see the Kathy Willits film, and I got to tell you, if there was any, and I, 
I got to say, other than the eyes, and she really did have beautiful eyes. I, I don't think I was really attracted to her. But then you see the movie and then you go, what is that? <laughs> what is that? Yes. So. I'm going to I'm going to dance around this one carefully Jeff without the hood. It was <laughs> it was the, okay. mud flaps if you will. Well, that's it. I was trying to, in case in case your your 90-year-old mother is Hey, I, I really I'm going to put the caveat that I do not want more right. host this episode. So there's there's the joke of mud flaps. We've all heard this joke. Is it safe to say Jeff that these are the most pronounced mud flaps in the history of mud flaps? Well, let me just say. Uh, You've seen worse? Uh, well, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say that she is not a woman who is unattractive, okay? You know, I just sent a picture as we're recording this to Lou, uh, so Lou knows what she looks like. Lou says, oh, oh, I know. So maybe Lou has seen the video. I don't know. But she's not, you know, it's not like, ooh, wow. Well, no, she's not a, no, she's not no, a complete she's not dog. unattractive no. woman. But, but. when she... Uh, uh, took off the clothing. Uh, I don't even remember if she had clothing in the film. First of all, uh, the boobage was very unattractive because she very. had got, uh, she'd gotten more than she needed. Shall yes. I say they were overinflated? Uh, Jeff is what yes, you're trying to yes. Very yes. bad boobs. Terrible. And then when the camera panned lower, <laughs> you get my drift. And I think you do. Yeah. These were the most unappealing set of vaginal apparatus. Is that a good way of putting it, Barry? That I think I've ever seen in my life. This was, these were ugly. These were nothing that would inspire you to go, oh yeah. You know, no, there was no, no quagmire going giggity, you know. But it's interesting to see them. I don't know if in a sexual way, but like in an oddity way, because they literally appear to be three or four inches as far as the hanging down. But then, aren't I correct? Weren't these pierced? Didn't she have like hoop earrings in them also? Uh, she may. It's uh, okay. You know, I, I saw about five minutes of the film and then I had to turn it off because I was so. Oh, I watched out. it all the way through. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a better man than I. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, th these were not anything that would inspire uh, a man to uh, uh, become, <laughs> uh, you know. To beat no. off. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, this was nothing you'd see that and go, oh, yeah. You yeah. know, this was this was more like, oh, no. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so uh, that was uh, Jeff and Kathy Willits, the most famous prostitutes in the history of venerable Broward County. Wow, what a story, Barry. Yeah, again, it was a big story. And she did an interview, and I remember this. And you mentioned you mentioned the impotence. If I'm correct, Jeff said he was impotent and couldn't have sex with his wife, which is why he sat in the lawn chair in the closet and watched. And then she, because of the nymphomania, she did this really famous interview. I don't know who it was with. I'm assuming it was somebody local, but I don't know that for a fact. And to quote her, she said, I can have an orgasm just driving down I-95. And well, that's, there's a uh, lot of traffic on 95. In yeah, words. yeah, yeah. But I'm so she's got to be in her 60s now, right? Well, she was 31 at the time. Yeah, she's got to be. Uh, yep, I would say. uh Young 60s, 61-ish, something like that. So, you know, one of the things that was that was great uh, about it, and there were so many facets of this story, Barry, was, you know, like you said, Jeff would sit in the the closet. Routine, uh, I'll quote the, uh, the paper here. Willits routinely watched his wife's escapades from the louvered bedroom closet. First time we've ever used the word louvered. Louvered. Yes. Bedroom closet 
uh, they say often jotting down notes, one client in uh, the uh, words of the prosecutor, quote, got involved with Kathy on more than a professional basis, uh, got emotional. Oh, the husband then gets upset about the fact that the relationship has gotten to be, uh, dare I say, more than sexual and reacted the way any husband would. He got jealous. He left a threatening message on the man's answer machine. And then the man called the cops, and whoa, that's when the shit hit the proverbial fan bearer. Yeah, so a couple of things with this. The photo that you sent, she actually looks really good in this photo. She looks like— I will uh, post this photo yeah, she on our looks, Facebook page, Breaking Cafe with Dr. and Barry. If I had to say it, too, she looks like you're a super hot MILF next-door neighbor in this photo. Not like a model gorgeous, but like, you know, somebody that if she was your next door neighbor and she's, you know, in her 30s, you'd go, wow, she's kind of attractive. Unfortunately, I think by the time this movie was filmed uh, that Jeff and I were describing in vivid detail, she had changed a lot. She was over tanned, which here she's not. She had gained weight. The boobs are I mean, the boobs are like completely unrealistic and she just doesn't look good. But in this photo, she looks good. And uh, so are they still together? Do you know? I actually, uh, uh, you know, purely for the investigative research uh, that we do here on this fine award-winning podcast, did Google the name. And uh, there's no, I want to say that I don't see any recent updates to the story. Uh, You know, uh, I I will say just when you thought the story couldn't get any stranger, they had reached some sort of agreement with the prosecutor's office. And the night before this, again, according to the trip story, the night before the agreement was to be signed, uh, Steve Wilson, a reporter for the old TV tabloid Inside Edition. Is that even still out there, Barry? I don't even know. Yeah. yeah. Announced that Guy Rubin, Rubin's son and law associate, had offered to sell a videotape of Willis and the old vice mayor of Fort Lauderdale in bed for 60 G's, Bear. Jeez. Apparently, he filmed the deal, and so uh, the the tape and the the prosecutors found out about this. They, you know, withdrew the plea offer. Ellis Rubin claimed that Inside Edition was jealous because uh, a current affair, there's another sh- uh, show that's not on the air anymore, had gotten the tapes and broadcast the fact that the Willits were on vacation. Oh, Barry, here's one that's going to shock you. At Hedonism, too. Barry, has uh, have, have you ever found yourself at one of the Hedonism resorts? I, I haven't been as desperate yet, but that's <laughs> well, could, you're could single happen. now, and you know, so. exactly, yeah. So yeah, this was a. Uh, and by the way, prosecutors were joking that entrepreneurs by the courthouse were selling the quote "I'm not on the list" T-shirts, and that uh, men would have shirts that say "I'm on Kathy's list," but it's a typo. That's kind of funny, actually, Bear. <laughs> that is funny too. Yeah, I'd be curious, though, It's uh, because through this whole thing, they said it was making their relationship stronger. I'd oh, be I'm curious sure. Now. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'd be curious now, 30 years later, as they're both in their 60s, and I think Jeff might have been a little bit older, too, could even be approaching 70, if they're a happily married couple. And what have they been doing the last 30 years? Right. Do, we, yeah. do we try to reach out to Jeff and Kathy for a future guest appearance here on Breaking I think Kick? I think that's a Patreon episode right there, yeah. Boom! Only for subscribers. Let me just point that out. So, Barry, how cool is it? We are joined by a couple of CWF legends. Oh, it is Dave Sierra, the Cuban assassin, and Ricky Santana. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us here on Breaking Cafe with Bowdoin and Barry. Thank you for having me, my friend. 
Yeah, so Barry. Yeah, exactly. Ricky Santana. We're better known as the Cuban Connection because we've wrestled everybody who's ever been somebody right here in Florida. So you've never wrestled anybody who's a nobody. There have always been somebody. Exactly. Okay. Everybody. everybody. (laughs) So, uh, guys, I wanted to ask you before we started, you know, one of the things I know about you two specifically is three of the areas that you guys worked in that you had a lot of success in was Oregon, CWF, and Puerto Rico. So out of those three, taking money out of the equation, just like is a fun place to work, which one of those three places did you guys enjoy working the most? Well, I'll let Ricky go first. Ah, well, you know, I, I, I loved working in Puerto Rico um, simply because the shows were late, trips were short. Every day on the beach, you worked five instead of seven. It was great from that aspect of it. But then again, Don Owens, great guy to work for. So, you know, what can you say bad about Pacific Northwest? And for me, well, Florida, you know, I grew up watching Gordon Soley, so... I love them all, man. If you would have given me, you know, did I prefer Mexico or prefer the Charlotte territory, it might have been a different story. But you gave me all three of my favorites, so I enjoyed them all. There wasn't one that was favored over. They all had their moment in time and good memories with everyone going through. David, what about you? Yeah, you know what? I have to go, you know, with the same, like what Ricky just said. I mean, it was so great to work here at home in Florida. You know, coming from Cuba, raised, you know what I mean, raised here in Florida. And it was so great to be here in Florida. And it was so good to wrestle here. But like Ricky just said, Don Owens, God bless, he was the best. The Portland, Oregon wrestling territory was, wow, that was like a place to be. And, you know, we were just joking, but everybody that was somebody went through there and became somebody even bigger. You know, and got sent to all all around the world. So, and you know, and then in Puerto Rico, it was so great there. Like Ricky just said, man, when we when I first went there, I was wrestling. We were doing TV like for like they would play on four different stations in Puerto Rico, Saturday and Sunday. You know, but you knew you know five days, and then you had like a couple of days off, and and it was a really a great time. Gotcha. So I want to talk about the early days when you guys were wrestling fans. And Ricky, I, I know that you've told this story previously. I think you grew up going to the matches on Miami Beach, correct? Correct. My dad was the one who would load up all the kids in the neighborhood. We would go down every Wednesday night down to the Miami Beach to watch uh, pro wrestling, as that was called. And I remember you telling a story, and I don't remember where I heard this story, but I remember you telling a story about when you had left Florida and you had come back and I guess your dad came to the matches and, and I guess he wasn't truly smartened up to the business yet. Is that correct? Uh, actually, uh, I never really smartened him up. I never smartened my mom up, but my mom, when, uh, you know, she first went to her one and only match, uh, it was one of those bunkhouse stampede things. And, um, you know, I had all the all the juice and everything else, and she said, "Never again. Your daddy can go all he wants, but I'm not going." You know, he. It was one of those things that you know I just invited her because I wanted her, you know, let her see what her son was doing. <laughs> and uh, you know, they, uh, you know, he could vouch that my dad was our number one supporter. You know, he, he gave us that original flag for the Cuban connection, and you know, he was always giving us 
life lessons, not necessarily wrestling lessons, but life lessons. Uh, you know, and, and Dave can vouch for that. He used to chew his ass up and down about life, and then he chew my ass up and down because I'm supposed to, you know, watch my partner's back. So I said, I am, Dad, I am. We watch each other's backs. He said, no, you got to do it. You got to do it. But, you know, God rest his soul. That was never smartened him up, but he was, he was, uh, he was into it. <laughs> That's great. Dave, yeah. What are your memories? Uh, so you born in Cuba, but you came to Tampa at a young age. You grew up watching CWF. Yes. What, what yes. are some of your earliest memories about that? Wow, man. I just remember the great feuds with Eddie Graham and the great Malenko. And as a kid, and me and Bill Alfonso, Franzi would go every Tuesday night. And then we'd skip school on Wednesdays and go to... Uh, the sportatorium, but first of all, Ricky's dad was the best, and and what he's saying is those truth, and uh, he supported us, and and you know, and backed us up on everything. And my point is, I had the same experience. My mom went to matches one time only too, and I literally had to crawl, telling and tell her, "Mom, I'm okay." And they had to escort her out, and somebody had to help her go out because she was about to have a nervous breakdown and uh you know even though she, i went and told her i was okay she just you know so i never she never ever went back again but you know like growing up here in florida i can remember the malenko eddie graham fuse i can remember watching that and then and then i'd go to the afterwards we would go to the pancake house because we knew eddie graham would be there and there would be eddie graham and he that bled like a pig man and he'd be sitting there with the big band-aid on his head and then blood would trickle down the two and every he knew that everybody in there how happy were at the night that night and he would take the napkin and wipe a little bit of blood dripping down and, and it was like it made it so much you know for me i would say wow and i don't know how ricky can you might relate to this, but when I was going to the matches, I would watch a bunch of other matches, and I'd say, well, that match might have been a work, but that Eddie Graham and Malenko, that was real. There is no way. That was, like, real. They, you know what I mean? That's how convincing they were. With You know, they'd beat the heck out of each other, and it was so convincing. Ricky, did you have the same kind of thing where you, uh, you thought some of it might have been work, but there was one, like, maybe the main event was for real? Uh, yeah, there was, you know, the, the Malenko-Eddie Graham feud was there. That was a, a big thing. Uh, Joe Scarpa was involved. The Gladiator was involved with Bugsy. And, you know, what really, really, when we I, I watched it because I, I moved from New York, so it was a different exposure. But when we moved to South Florida, there was uh, it's a Spanish station now, uh, 23. But back then, there was a UHF station. And on Sundays... They had a four-hour block of wrestling. The first hour was from the Olympics. The next hour was from Oklahoma. The next hour after that was from the Carolinas. And the last hour was Florida Championship Wrestling. So it really got me hooked with Gordon and, you know, and, and the Briscoes and the Funks and, and the Grams and everybody involved. But as I started going to the matches, you know, when my dad was starting to take us all the time, the, the, one of the big feuds at the time was on Buddy Colt, which was phenomenal, unbelievable heel. And uh, Bill Watts for the North American title. Yeah. And I remember yes, one sir. night. Yes, sir. I, I remember one night they had that uh, Watts came to the ring because Buddy had that thump. And uh, he jumped, you know, 
Bill from behind and give, give him a thumb and he had a towel around his neck, you know, when Bill came to the ring, but he had a dog collar with Spike. So, you know, Buddy was selling it and, and, and the finish was so heelish that they bumped the referee. Both of them are down. Buddy gets up. He takes the dog collar off of Watt, thumbs him and puts the collar back on him and covers it. Stu Schwartz counts one, two, three. The place was in an uproar. And I remember I was hopping down to go down in, into the, the, the one walkway that goes out where the guys would go back to the locker room. And some fan took a swing at Stu because he thought, you know, that he shouldn't have gave him the match. He should have been, you know, aware of that. And Miami Beach is fine. It's had that guy on the ground and they handcuffed him to the rail. I still remember that. And I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. These guys are really wanting to kill each other. And I was hooked even more. You know, I made my dad beg my dad. We got to go. We got to go, whether it was Fort Lauderdale, but Miami Beach was religion for us on a Wednesday. That was it. You know, my dad says, you're crazy, son, but I'm taking you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That same match that Ricky seen in Miami, watching here in Tampa with the exact same finish, because back then, you know, everything wasn't so, uh, you know, there wasn't so much internet exposure and all that. But, uh, yeah, Buddy Cut was so great, and God bless his soul, and Paul Jones back then, and Jack Briscoe yeah. and Jerry Briscoe. It was the talent back then. When we're kids watching this, and, you know, Dick Slater was just starting out, and Mike Landon, and it was, like, unreal. Well, we're real excited. We've got Ricky Santana. We've got Dave Sierra, Fidel Sierra, the Cuban assassin, collectively known as the Cuban Connection, and they're really part of this great event. They come courtesy of our for a good friend, Nick Massey, this Thursday night. So it's only two days away, this upcoming Thursday night, 9 o'clock, the second episode of Behind the Flag, the CIA CWF Part 2. It's a great thing. Ricky and Fidel are doing a Zoom call with a select amount of fans, a select group of fans, they're going to talk. They're going to tell stories. They're going to answer questions. And there's different price levels as well. You can get autographed cards. You can get an autographed event poster. This is a really great, unique way to have interaction with wrestling legends. Uh, and I love this. I will tell you, Nick is offering a special pricing at the moment. If you order this event, and we're going to put all the details up in our Facebook group today, but if you order this event, Prior to Thursday, which means today, Tuesday, or Wednesday, it's only $7.99 as your base price. The day of, it does go up to $9.99, but this is so unique. So how exciting for you guys to be able to have a forum where you can interact with fans and you can discuss your career. Dave, you've been around wrestling. I mean, I, I saw you. I'm going to say it was 79 that I saw you. So yes, you sir. Got I started in 1978. Yeah, so and, uh, you've got, you know, you're going back decades at this point, and you still work occasionally. I know I saw you a couple of years ago. You were still still in great shape. So how exciting to be able to interact with fans via these Zoom calls. Uh, it's it's really unreal, and, and I, I would check the times because some people are saying 8, some people are saying 9, and I'm pretty sure it starts at 8, but I don't want to, you know, it, the, the bottom line is it's, such a great deal. The CIA, Cubans in action. 
you know, we talk about everything there that, you know, uh, like you just said, and, and uh, stuff up and down that has happened. And that we did we lived, you know, wrestling in this business in championship wrestling from Florida, you know, just like the great fan fest that Barry Rose puts on, you know, it's so great to be able to touch on what we're touching on right now is championship wrestling from Florida, because like Ricky said, we grew up watching it. We got to do it here at home. I mean, you know, wrestle all over the state of Florida, held belts. Florida champion, Southern champion, tag team champion, you name it, and we did it here. And and we got to see a lot of other people do it before us. And our stories are so good that it's worth uh, checking it out. And I would suggest that everybody who's listening to it to check this out. Cubans in action. So let me ask you, is there any chance, because I know in the past we have fans not only from Florida, but fans of yours from Portland. Any chance that some old associates of yours, the Saint or Top Gun, are they going to be part of the Zoom call? You know what? You never know in the pro wrestling business what can happen. I would say that that's a big, 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 big possibility that the Saint will show up and that Top Gun will show up. So going through all your aliases too, Dave, rumor has it. Wait a minute. Wait, well, what? <laughs> I thought they were associates of his. They're associates, but wasn't there also an assassin that was working in Portland, too? Yep, and, you know, uh, and God bless Jody Hamilton. The, the number one, God bless Jody Hamilton, the best assassin yeah. ever. Yes, there, but there was an assassin in Portland, Oregon, and Jody one time, God bless, told me, hey, you know, that assassin, you know, I got that copyrighted and all that, but he was ripping so, yeah, there was a destroyer, too, which then, you know, and these are all, Don Owens came up with this, and Ricky knows, you know what I mean? Her, you know, the destroyer was wrestling in Dallas and was told on his way to Oregon that he was going to be the destroyer. The assassin was wrestling in Louisiana for a show and was told on his way to Oregon that he was going to be the assassin. And then along came Top Gun after a tour in Japan. But, you know, these characters are, wow, that's some great stuff. Yeah, and and if I'm correct, too, there was a rumor that Ricky even spent time underneath a hood as the hood. Is that correct? Uh, there's a speculation. Speculation. You know. <laughs> scuttlebutt. <laughs> scuttlebutt. Yeah, scuttlebutt, you know. Uh, it's on the Internet, so it must be true, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, Rick. You just hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so let me ask you guys a question, too. So having worked the Florida Territory, having worked it more than once also, what was your favorite city? And, and why was that city your favorite? You know, I'm going to say it was Tampa was one of my favorites because it was home for me. But uh, there's so many different other towns, and I loved going to Miami, and I knew that was Ricky's home. So I would have to go Tampa, Miami, you know, uh, I liked Orlando, West Palm Beach was fun. They all, they all were fun, but those I would have to go number one with Tampa. Ricky, what about you? Uh, for me, obviously Miami Beach, for me, it was, it was such a great honor to step into the same building that I had been to as a fan that my dad used to take me 
And the first time I took him there, I didn't tell him because I was finishing up in San Antonio coming into Florida. And I didn't tell him that I was there. He still thought I was in Texas. And I said, hey, we're going to get something to eat. And I bought him a ringside ticket. And I had taken him down there for some seafood. But he says, there's no seafood place around here. What are you talking about? And I pulled in. I dropped him off up front. Gave him a ticket. Went inside. Waiting for the matches to come out. And as I'm coming out, I see my dad signing programs. <laughs> right? And, and I'm like, well, what are you doing? So I, I, I pick him up. Well, now we're going to go eat, Dad. I said, but what were you doing to sign the program? He said, well, I knew you were coming up. So, I, you know, I know where they come out of. So I'm looking and I'm standing. And the guy behind me taps me and he goes, hey, you want to sit down, mister? You act like your kid's going to wrestle. He goes, he is. And he goes, who's your kid? He goes, he's on the cover of the grapevine. That was, you know, the, the, the magazine that came out at the, at the matches and I happened to be on the cover. And, you know, they said, oh, that's your son. Can I have an autograph? And he goes, who am I to deny him an autograph, son? I said, Pops, you're too much, man. But, hey, for me, that was great. I love Tampa. I love Tampa because it was Tampa. You know, and that's where everything was, was based around. But one time that we had some outrageous matches and, and some tough stuff, for me, was in Sarasota. In Sarasota, there yes. was the feud that we had carried on with the uh, with the Sheep Herders at the time, and the Bob Wire, and the, you know those all going around the, the whole territory. So that's where we not you know kicked that one off. We had that bunkhouse in, in Street Fight in Orlando. We went all over the building. You know, it's just some great memories of, of what for me what the business was when I watched it as a kid. And then seeing myself being a part of that business and, you know, having to be working with, with the legends that I had watched on, on TV at one point in time. So let me ask you, we like to go and ask stuff, not just about wrestling. We like to delve into your personal life too. So you guys, not just, uh, again, as you said, not just Puerto Rico, Oregon and CWF, you guys worked all over the country. So tell me back in your single days, where Absolutely. did you find the most friendly female fans? All over. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, Florida, Portland, Carolina. I mean, it's just was any any uh, place more more friendly than another? Not in my book. <laughs> yeah, mine either. <laughs> it didn't matter if you were it didn't matter if you were baby face or heel. You know. <laughs> They, they were uh, they were all around there, you know, and they were fans. Sure, they yeah. they were, and I I can tell you. So it, as somebody that grew up going to the matches on Miami Beach, starting in the early seventies, there were a lot of attractive female fans uh, that were there, it, and then you would see some of them in West Palm Beach or Fort Lauderdale. But it took me a little while to understand why they weren't in Tampa. And then I somebody finally clued me in as to why they weren't in Tampa, why as many weren't in Tampa. So you guys have you both have had just tremendous careers, great careers, but you guys aren't done. You're still making, you know, uh, events. You're still making fan fest and things like that. If I was to say to you, Ricky Santana, what has been the highlight of your pro wrestling career up to this day? What would that answer be? Would that be? Match-wise, or, or would that be what I had set out to do when I first started in the business? That's because totally up to you. Plateaus. 
Sure. Uh, for me, starting out in the business, I wanted to work every style that there was. The blood and guts of Puerto Rico, the technical aspect of, you know, watching Florida Championship with all those amateurs. Um, in Mexico, the Lucha Libre style. In Japan, the strong style. In Europe, the round style. And, and I got to accomplish that. Uh, for me, the pinnacle that, that, that put me in there, it was actually working Ric Flair for the first time in Louisville, uh, going five out of six segments on TV because of the fact that I had seen uh, Met Flair in, in 1980 um, at a club uh, in Tampa, obviously. <laughs> he had been in the business for a while, but, you know, I told him I was training, you know, and, you know, I was training with Malenko and everything else. And uh, he said, stay out of kid. So for me to have that conversation and then end up working in the ring with him was an accomplishment in itself for myself. And then, of course, you know, finding Dave off an arm drag, you know, that was uh, monumental, too. Yeah, yeah, I'm still feeling that arm drag. <laughs> well, <laughs> gentlemen, as, as we begin to wrap up, we definitely appreciate you taking the time to spend uh, a few minutes with us to talk about your careers, but also to talk about this event that's taking place. It's just this upcoming Thursday night. It's August the 19th. This is going to be a Zoom call where Ricky Santana and the Cuban assassin Fidel Sierra behind the flag CIA CWF part two. Very exciting. There are different pricing levels, but if you buy your access now, you're actually going to save a couple of bucks. It's $7.99 starting on Thursday. That price will go up to $9.99, but you can also get autographed memorabilia. Captain Nick, Captain Nick Massey is going to have cards. You can get individual solo cards, or you can also get a Cuban connection card that both Ricky and Fidel will be signing for you. Gentlemen, Jeff and myself and Sweet Lou, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Well, thank we you want to thank us. you all. And it was so great. And, uh, you know, and we can't wait till Thursday and hope a lot of people tune in, you know, on Zoom. And uh, but it's, it, it's really been a pleasure. Uh, I, like I said, I love all you guys. I love Barry Rose. I most respect, so much respect. You know, <laughs> I love you too. Stuff him and Dave Pinter do, and 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 you know, it's it's all great, and and it was a pleasure being on this show with my partner Ricky Santana. Dave, just let me ask you one last question: <laughs> Who do you have more respect for, Barry or Dave? Ah, man. Is it like fifty-one forty-nine for, now, now for Barry? Are, listen, I'll never listen. You, I'll never get booked on another fa- fan fest ever again. I, I you know what? I love them brother. Both. I'm going. I'm going babyface all the way. I love them both. They're great. <laughs> they're legends. <laughs> no, they're, they're both great, really and truly. You know, and Dave Benzer and I go way back, and Barry Rose and. And they're both great, you know, and I respect them both. With me and David, butt heads a few times, but, you know, it's usually about politics. But I love him anyway, and I really care for Barry Rose. So I would say they're both on the le- same level with me. There you go. That, Jeff, is that the answer? The same and we'll never be booked again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, Barry has plenty of stroke. He'll get you booked. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank Uh, you. Thank thank you all so much. 
Thank you. So now, Barry, as we begin to wrap up, it is time for, I know, perhaps your favorite segment. Oh, Barry, it's time for This Week in CWF. So, Barry, what do you got for us on this particular day? Absolutely. This, on the day of your daughter's wedding. And you come to me. You come to me. Why am I uh, giving forth a Godfather reference? Because. Why are you whispering? I thought maybe you were doing a Kathy Willis impression. Well, that's another story. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Kathy's at the house now. She's with me. and uh, yeah. We're tying it all together. Yeah. So, yeah, we do. We have got a match that took place, Jeff. What year were you born? 1961. So 1961, the same year that you were born on this date, which would be August the 17th, in the lovely city of Jacksonville, where your parents and sister and a large— Memorial Coliseum Bear? Uh, 61. No, I don't think so. I think it was the, uh, the venue that they had before that. I think the Coliseum was still about three or four years away, I think. But Kurt and Carl von Brauner faced another guy forgotten in time, Big Ike Eakins, big star in the fifties and sixties. I believe he passed late sixties of a heart attack, but his partner that night, Len Montana and Len Montana Luca Brazzi from the Godfather movie. Sleeps with the fishes. Sleeps with. Leave the gun. Bring, bring the, cannoli. the cannoli. Exactly. So, yeah, that's a good one right there. This is a match that it really struck me as interesting. I don't understand it. I, I don't have an explanation. But about three years ago, when Stan Hansen was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, did you happen to watch that, Jeff, by any chance? I don't know if I did or not, to be honest with you. Yeah, Stan was good. He, a lot of those speeches, you know, take them or leave them, whatever. But Stan was good because he's not a WWE guy. So he could say whatever he want. Well, he put over a lot of guys from early in his career. And these were guys that he had worked with in Florida, actually. And one guy was Mike Pedusis. And Mike was a, a journeyman kind of uh you know it was uh and it was i don't want to say he was a job guy per se but his job Mike is was the guy that put stan's name out there to bruno san martino oh is that what the okay there yeah, you go that's what it was because mike worked with stan i want to say either in texas or oklahoma and he called bruno up and said i got a kid that you should work with and that's how that's how stan ended up for the first time going up to the wwf wwf there were, what was it, four, five W's in one app? Uh, I, I, you know, I lose after lose a while. Them. But they did. They did work with each other in Florida as well in 73. But the reason I bring this up, Mike Pedusas actually got a world title shot on this date in 66 in O'Galley, which uh, I believe is known as Melbourne now for whatever. It's all incorporated. But Mike Pedusas, not a guy that would have gotten a lot of world title shots. I think that's really interesting. A year later, we're back to Jacksonville, where the Bowdrin clan, where most of the Bowdrin family is currently, a Japanese torture match by two fine Japanese wrestlers, Eddie Graham and the Great Malenko. So no idea why they had a Japanese <laughs> yes, torture match. You know, you couldn't think about the Russian chain, which they had, they wrestled each other a million times, like, but still a Japanese torch match. That's interesting. But speaking of Japanese guys, uh, three years later in Orlando, August 17th, 1970, Mr. Saito against Bob Root. Bob, obviously a good friend of the show, but here are two guys that actually were in the Olympics for professional wrestling. And now they're facing off in a profound jet. We're, we're right back to Jacksonville. This is like the all Jacksonville episode. 
I like this match too. So it's a lights out match, Buddy Cole against Eddie Graham, but special referee Dick Kroll. And what is interesting about this, and I remember this from when I was a kid, whenever the New York refs would come down, Dick Kroll, would, this would be Dick Kroll, and there was a guy named John Stanley. And John Stanley would come down once a year, coincidentally, Jeff, usually around Christmas time. And it's they, almost like he planned it that way. Yes, it was. It just there is no such thing as a coincidence. So it is like it was planned. But they, these guys would come down and it was it tend to be during Christmas. In this case, Dick Kroll's here in the summer. But what makes me wonder about that, he's here in the summer. Disney World has been open up less than a year. I wonder if this was a family vacation in August. So a lot of these refs would come down and I don't know if they contacted the office or maybe Vince senior contacted the office, but these guys would get jobs refereeing and they would only do one or two matches and they would say special troubleshooting enforcer from New York. And then these guys obviously got a payday, but were also able to write this off their taxes. So yes. Interesting. Uh, tricky, tricky referees. Very tricky. Exactly. Very tricky. Moving on to 1976 Tampa, Terry Funk defending the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship against a guy that I have said numerous times was good enough to be a world's champion, and that's Steve Kern. And occasionally somebody will say to me, Steve Kern, he's a tag team guy. He had a lot of success being a tag team wrestler. If you never saw Steve Kern in the 1970s in Florida, then you're, you missed out because he was everything an NWA World's Heavyweight Champion could have been and should have been. He was that good. I, this one was kind of interesting and interesting also, I think, because we just uh, we're going to we just had them on, which was Fidel Sierra and Ricky Santana. But this card from 1985. Tell me how many Portland guys we got on this card. Main event, Wahoo McDaniel and Billy Jack Haynes against Rick Rude and Rip Oliver. Coco Samoa versus Rip Rogers. The Grappler versus Tiger Conway Jr. Scott McGee versus the Marauder, who was Jerry Gray, by the way. So really interesting. You don't have Ricky or Fidel, but you've got all these other guys that spend time in the Pacific Northwest. I believe this is when the grappler was actually booking as well. So that would make sense. And I, I also, Don Owen actually promoted this show here in Florida. It's almost a Don Owen show. They <laughs> didn't have great success with this little run right here. And I don't think, you know, look, the talent was there and these guys could work and they were great workers, but I don't know if the fans gravitated to them as they do uh, some other talents. And then the last match I have, Jeff, August 17th, 1986, Orlando, another city that your parents used to live in, Jeff, the fabulous ones against the shock troops. And I was a fan of the shock troops. You know, the, the Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwe express. I love (laughs) try again. Right. The Zambui express. I was a big fan of those guys. And uh, you know, it was, it was fun. Mr. Elijah Akeem and Mr. Kareem Muhammad. And if you ever refer to them as Kareem Muhammad or Elijah Akeem, they would, (laughs) they would correct you. (laughs) <laughs> with that, Mister, and I loved it. Well, I, I think at this point, Ray Candy may have already passed away. I know that he had had some health issues, and I know he died at a very young age. But Ray Candy, who was Kareem Mohammed, took up with Ed the Bull Gantner, who we talked about a couple of weeks back. 
and uh, they formed the shock troops. And that, that, that was, this was another fun team. You know, you couldn't take too much of it seriously, but at the same time, there was a lot of fun involved. So Jeff, that is your day in CWF history. Thank you, Mr. Rose. Okay, as we've now rounded the uh, the bend and we are heading for the home stretch, I will remind you that Breaking K-Fabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Our uh, sweet man, Lou Kippelman, out there in the city by the bay on the production duties. We always appreciate his work. And for my co-host, Barry Rose, I am Jeff the Booker Bowdrin. As we leave, Barry, please, going to leave the folks with a tidbit. Tell the folks, since you and I always talk about this kind of stuff, what is a television show you are currently watching, my man? Any show that you're like into oh, watching right now. And this is, well, it's Mr. In-Between, but I just finished up Cocaine Cowboys, which you and I are going to talk about. I finished In up the my- future, yes, we've yes. got plans. I finished up My Name is Earl last week, and I finished up last night a 10-episode only show starring Kirsten Dunst. And Ted Levine, as we know him, Buffalo Bill from uh, puts the uh, lotion in the basket. Puts the lotion, but this this show was called "The Making of a God in Central Florida" or something like that. Title. This was a great show. Only ten episodes. They Showtime renewed it for the next year. COVID hit. They scrapped all the plans. They left me hanging. So I now, as of tonight, Jeff, I need a new TV show. What are you recommending to me tonight? I also recently finished the Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of South Florida on Netflix. Fantastic, fantastic watch. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Billy Corbin produced this one also. Uh, a very, very good uh, documentary filmmaker. I will say that in the future, we're going to review this show and we'll be having special guests reviewing this program. What? We're going... Going outside of our wheelhouse on this one, Barry. So look for that in the very near future. But I have started watching, and I'm just about done with season one, a absolutely stellar program that uh, somehow I missed a boat on this. My wife has read some of these books on Amazon Prime, Bosch. Barry, are you familiar with that show? I am, but I've never watched it. Do you recommend tonight? I give a strong, strong recommendation. As I said to somebody when you sit there and you start noticing people that were in Deadwood, that were in The Walking Dead, that were in uh, The Wire, there's uh, somebody else that was in 24, all these actors that were in tremendous, tremendous TV shows, strong, strong recommendation for Bosch and Cocaine Cowboys is on Netflix. I encourage you and Barry will agree with me on that to check that out. And that's it for this week. Lou, take it home, my man.